Well, good morning. What a wonderful fall morning. It's a good season, yeah? For how many of you, fall is the favorite season? Ooh, yeah. That's, it's a good season. Uh, well, uh, we are in Open House Sundays. For those of you new to our church, special welcome to you. Just to make it clear, we are a progressive Christian church. I don't know if you are familiar with what that would mean, but we are progressive. You can look it up on Google. <laughs> However, many in this church, including me, has conservative Christian background. That's our history. I spent the first years of my faith with a group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. How many of you have heard of that group? It's a very well-known group, about 100 years old, very respected evangelical Christian college group, kind of like Campus Crusade. Have you guys heard of Campus Crusade? Probably all of you, right? InterVarsity is even older and bigger, but just a little less known, but it's kind of similar. InterVarsity was known for studying the Bible. They used to joke that InterVarsity worships the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. Right? So the Bible was a big deal. We also spent a lot of time doing evangelism. Evangelism. Uh, that dreaded word, right? That makes conservative Christians feel very guilty about not doing it, and non-Christians feel kind of scared about what would happen. <laughs> I went to Stanford in college with this group, a really good college, and I had good grades, but I really spent more time talking about faith with my friends than practically anything else. I majored in university. And that felt like worthwhile purpose for my life because I was taught that only Christians get to go to heaven. You heard that, right? Only Christians get to go to heaven. And what it meant to become a Christian was to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and a few other statements of faith like Jesus died for our sins. And if you accept these statements, then your eternal destiny will change. Right? You've heard this line of thinking. And I talked to so many friends of mine, and many of them became Christians because of me, and I just felt so happy about that because that meant their eternal destiny was now changed. And that felt like a worthwhile purpose for my life. You know, this is, uh, yes, I, uh, that happens to me all the time too. So, anyway, so I was like, you know, there's a slide for this. Um, how many of us get nervous when someone comes up to you and wants to talk to you about your eternal destiny with a big Bible in their hands, asking questions like, do you know where you would go if you died today? Right? What, you know, most of us would be like, just walk fast <laughs> and pretend you never heard anything and hope they will walk away, right? 
That's, that's our reaction usually. To think I was like that, myself. You know, well, useful folly, right? Some people do drugs, I did evangelism. <laughs> so my history. Thankfully, not anymore. Because the problem with this line of thinking is, there's many problems, but the primary problem, in my opinion, is this is not what Jesus taught. This is not what Jesus taught. The faith cannot be reduced to a few factual statements and think that's all there is. You know, if you tell me where you were born, I can tell you whether you are likely to believe these statements of faith or not better than any other indicator can. If you were born in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia or Iran, you are not going to be Christian. Conversely, if you were born in the Bible Belt, you're very likely to be a born-again Christian, evangelical Christian, who believe these statements. Are we to believe that accident of birth would determine our eternal destiny? Really? I mean, geography of where you were born, which is random, is that going to determine whether you spend time in heaven or hell? Seriously, can we really believe such a thing of God? That seems like such a travesty. How about priests and pastors who abuse kids for decades? And many of them fervently believe these statements I mentioned and recite them all the time. Are they going to spend eternity in heaven as a reward for reciting a few statements? While good Muslim or good loving Buddhist born in Tibet who never heard anything good about Christianity, so they don't recite these statements? They are going to spend time in hell you know, just because they were born at the wrong time, at the wrong place. That is very, very hard to swallow, don't you think? This is a very confusing issue for many Christians. It's very hard to keep that straight in your head. How do we like, reconcile these things? And most of us never get any satisfying answers. You know, mostly it's just, well, just... Don't worry about that kind of pesky questions, right? You know, ah, who knows? God will do, right? Don't think about such things. Just swallow it. Just hold these very contradictory things just in your head and just live with it. And that's very unsatisfactory. Wouldn't you agree? And that's what I want to talk about today because the truth is there are much deeper and clearer teachings from Jesus about who and how salvation happens. We don't have to get confused and speculate. He was asked point blank, who goes to heaven? How does salvation happen? And Jesus gave straight up answers, very clear. That clears up all these issues. This is from the book of Luke, chapter 10. On one occasion, a theologian stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to be saved for eternal life? How does salvation happen? Very important question. What is written in the Bible, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, 
with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Ding, 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 10 points. Do this and you will be saved for eternal life. Yes, that is how you get saved, Jesus says. That is exactly how salvation happens. This is a very famous passage about salvation. And the answer is love. And you can't argue with love. Nobody can argue with love. But you know, love is such a cliche. It just loses all its relevance. Right? Let's love one another. All you need is love. I mean, boring. Right? You've heard this again and again. No one can disagree with power of love. But you can hear this line of thinking pretty much anywhere and everywhere from every religion, every kind of person, even Beatles, right? All you need is love. You know that song? Very famous song, right? Beatles are theological, you know. You get it from everywhere, so it just loses all relevance. I'm going to surprise you here. It's not true love will save you. It's not true. It will not. Mothers love their children. Most mothers, greatly. Does that, the, does that mean mother, all mothers who love their children because they have children, are they going to go to heaven? Does, does love save in that case? Young people fall in love all the time, Romeo and Juliet. I know it's fictional. But, you know, it's a fiction representing some reality. They kill each other. They, they kill themselves over each other because they love so much. They can sacrifice themselves. It's a sacrificial love that knows no bounds. Does that save you for eternity or is that teenage hormones? I'm not sure, right? Hmm. Does love save? Does that bring salvation? This is where I think theologians have done us grave disservice with inadequate translation. More accurate translation of this passage ought to read this way. Unconditionally love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And unconditionally love your neighbor as yourself. Now it feels different. Unconditional. That has a bite now. Because unconditional love is hard. That's not natural. But it is crucial to use the right translation. The original Greek for the word love here is agape. This word agape is so important. Whenever you see the word love in the New Testament in positive light, you can assume it's agape. For God so agape the world that God gave the only begotten Son. Anyone who agape has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not agape does not know God, for God is agape. Agape is the fulfillment of every requirement of the Bible. Do you see how important agape is? God is agape. There is no other statement in the Bible that declares God is. God loves justice. God does this. God does that. Only one statement that defines God. God is agape. And agape is the fulfillment of every requirement of the Bible. If you ever wondered about, you know, am I breaking the, the commandments or whatever, agape 
is it. You judge every action by agape, according to the Bible. And if anyone agapes, anyone, Buddhist, Muslim, secular person, anyone, it says they know God, they are born of God, they belong to God. Sounds like someone bound for heaven, doesn't it? Agape is everything in faith. Therefore, we need to better understand this word agape. There are four major words for love in Greek. Eros, philia, storge, and agape. Eros is romantic love. That's where erotic love comes from. Storge is the love you have for your family. Philia is love for what you like, like your friends, the music you like, what you are naturally drawn to. And agape, what makes agape unique is that it is unconditional. Here's the definition of agape. In Christianity, agape is unconditional love, the highest form of love, and the love of God for man and of man for God. This is in contrast to all other types of loves as it embraces universal, unconditional love that transcends and persists regardless of circumstances. That's why agape should be translated as unconditional love to distinguish it from all these other kinds of love that does not bring salvation. All other loves are natural to your human nature. Eros, stoje, philia, it's what you're drawn to naturally. It's what you would do. But agape, that is against our nature. Very difficult for us. And only agape will save us. Not any other kind of love. So I am mystified. Why basically every Bible translation has taken out the word unconditional here and just simply put love. Because the power of the word agape resides in unconditionality. Without it, it just becomes a cliche. Makes me even suspicious. Because it would serve those who want to teach conditional tribal theology like we have the right theology. We believe the right stuff. And you have to come to us and become one of us. And that's the only way you're going to be saved for heaven. Everybody else is going to hell. We heard this so many places. So many different. There are 12,000 Protestant denominations in America. And all the denominations, it's just, why? Because they have the right theology, they feel. That would put the power and control in the hands of the few religious leaders who have it right, right? Whereas if instead, if it was all about unconditional love, anyone can strive to do that from anywhere, no matter who they are, where they are, what they are, right? That would put the power in your hands, right? You would have the power, whether you practice it or not, it's all about what you believe and what you do with respect to agape. doesn't put the power in the hands of the right religious leaders and right churches. And that is going to be resisted by religious mindset, religious leaders. Indeed, the theologian in the passage resists Jesus' teaching about unconditional love. 
perhaps because its relevance depends on it. The passage continues. But the theologian wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This man wants to justify himself. Justify. That's a very insightful observation. We all have a driving need to justify ourselves. And what did he want to justify? His identity as a theologian? His bona fides as a good, Bible-following, faithful person of faith? This reminds me of Adam and Eve right after they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I talked about this at length last Sunday, right? Tree of knowledge of good and evil, it leads to conditional mentality that leads to wanting to justify yourself with all the coverings. Remember that? There it is, right here. His conditional mentality reveals itself when he asks, and who is my neighbor that I am required to love? He wants to put conditions, right? Conditions on that neighbor. What conditions that a person needs to meet that I have to love them? He resists the unconditionality of the word agape. You see that, right? So in response, Jesus says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a worship pastor, when he came to the place and saw him, I hope not Mike, <laughs> sorry, did not want to bring you up, it's me too, anyway, <laughs> passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The theologian replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. What an incredible passage as a response to the question, who is my neighbor? This is the famous Good Samaritan story. You've heard of the phrase Good Samaritan, right? This is where it comes from. Usually taught as a lesson in selfless service, right? The usual line of teaching is sacrifice your time and money. You know, be selfless. Look out for those who are in need and do what you can. Maybe more than what you can. Be selfless as you can for God and you will be rewarded with heaven. Right? You will be a good Christian. That's the usual line of teaching. But that doesn't make sense since salvation is supposed to be by faith alone. You see, we must remember that this story was told as a response to the question, who am I supposed to love? Who am I required to love? This was not a response to the question of how selfless must I love? How much passion do I have to put into love? How much sacrifice do I have to make 
for God. Do you see the difference? This story is an answer to what are the conditions? Who is my neighbor I am required to love? And his teaching is shocking because Jesus brings up a Samaritan as a model to follow for salvation. Now, what is a Samaritan? These days, good Samaritan refers to anyone who just goes above and beyond. Like if you see someone with a blown tire on the side of the road, you're supposed to stop, help them. That's a good Samaritan, right? That's how we understand that word. But at the time of Jesus, Samaritan referred to a specific people group with a specific religion and culture, like Tibetan Buddhist. You know what I'm saying? And they were despised by the church at the time. Why? Because Samaritans were a racial and religious mixture. A modern equivalent would be someone like a Muslim, Buddhist, New Age witch. It would be a complete salad, <laughs> mixed up. Because Samaria or Samaritans was a result of Babylonian imperial policy to mix up all the races and religions. So they were just a mixed up bunch of people. So don't you think Jesus makes scandalous, outrageous point to a Bible theologian to lift up Samaritan as the model for how to be saved? That would be like today telling a Catholic priest, a Muslim, Buddhist, Tibetan is the model of salvation. Not you guys. Them's fighting words, don't you think? That's like asking for a fight. It's worse even because in the story, the priest and the, and the Levite, the worship pastor, they were pastors and worship leaders of church at the time. So, and, and Jesus said they represent what not to do. They are models of who's going, not going to heaven. Wow. Why are they not going to heaven? Because they passed by the helpless man. One big reason I believe is because there is no way to identify this robbed man as a fellow believer. Because if he were a fellow believer, there were rules in the Bible requiring church leaders to help them out. They are neighbors who must be loved. Fellow believer must be helped out. But this robbed man is naked to his underwear. <laughs> Stripped of his, all his identity markers. Our clothing represents so much of who we are. Especially back in those days. Even now, you know, when you see this clothing, you can immediately identify what kind of religion they believe and what tribe they belong to. You can tell right away, right? Muslim, Buddhist, Catholic, Orthodox Jew. Immediately, you know. And especially back in those times, everybody wore these identity markers to signal what tribe they belong to. But this man, he could be anyone. Because when we are stripped of these coverings, we could be anyone. Because underneath it all, we are all the same. We are all human beings underneath it all. Right? 
And all that the Samaritan cares is he sees a human being made in the image of God and doesn't care what tribe, doesn't care what identity marker he has. The Samaritan shows unconditional mindset. He displays agape, unconditionality. It doesn't matter who this man is. That's the point of this passage. Remember, anyone who agape has been born of God and knows God, whoever does not agape does not know God, for God is agape. Therefore, it doesn't matter what we call ourselves. If someone is a Muslim, a Buddhist, a secular person, a Samaritan, or a Christian, it doesn't matter. We can call ourselves Christian. But if we exhibit conditional mentality like so many religious people do, put some conditions on people and treat them differently, any condition, we are not following true Jesus. We're following some construct we have constructed in our own mind, an idol of a human construct. Priests and pastors who abuse kids, they are not following Jesus, no matter what they claim to be. No matter how fervently they recite statements of faith or do the sacraments, they are not following agape, right? So they are not following Jesus because Jesus is agape. Jesus is God's unconditional love made manifest in the flesh. Remember that. So a Muslim person or a Buddhist person or a Samaritan who shows agape they are my true brothers and sisters in faith, in my mind. They are the true Christians. Because they are following Jesus, no matter what they call themselves. Because they are following agape. Capish? Yes? Are we agreed? They are the ones bound for heaven. In fact, they will experience something of heaven now, even. Not just after death, because... Agape mindset is the antidote to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I preached about this in detail last Sunday. This is a set of sermons that's coming one after another that connects. So it's like a trilogy of science fiction or something. I recommend listening in order. Um, if you missed it, please take a listen. It's a whole another sermon. But, but briefly, please understand that what brings all the important sin in this world come from constant judging and comparing, conditional mentality, feeling like you don't measure up, and driven by this need to feel more worthy, so you just grasp after thing after thing, trying to fill up that hole in your heart that seems to never fill up, this need to feel more worthy. And the, and the message of the world is only certain conditions make you worthy. It's the successful people who are worthy. It's the beautiful people who are worthy. It's, it's the right, you know, it's those who believe the right kind of things. They are worthy. They are the neighbors worth loving. Some conditions, some covering in biblical language makes different people worthy depending on what caste system you got going in your head. And all human beings are subjected to this. To be clear, there's a lot of value in being successful, but it's a practical value. It does not make anyone more worthy. As Christian, our worth, our faith declares our worth is in Christ. Is that God 
incarnate died for you and me. That establishes our worth. It's infinite. Can't top that. No matter what condition we can put on, that's what makes it an antidote to tree of knowledge of good and evil. But the world is conditional. It constantly tells you that if you fail to perform and measure up to some standard, then you are no longer worthy. You have failed. We can feel worthless so easily, don't you think? When we make mistakes, when life gets difficult, it's so easy to think we are abandoned by God, we're cursed by God, we're being punished. What did I do wrong? What sin have I committed? Let me ask you, if we become helpless, beaten up, left on the side of the road, useless, helpless, feeling like nothing, because nobody in the world cares about us, does that mean are we no longer worthy to God? Are we no longer worthy if we fail? That's what this teaching is about. Because Jesus is that good Samaritan. Wouldn't you agree? God says, no, you are worth my time, my money, my care, my life. What a powerful message, right? That's the gospel. That's good news. Jesus is the good Samaritan, and Jesus calls us all to do likewise. And that's the way to heaven for anyone. Jesus set a mission, a purpose for all Christians. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That is a mission, a purpose for anyone who wants to have faith. I used to think this man convincing people to accept a few statements about Jesus, to convert them. That was my purpose before. I was so naive and so wrong. This, instead, is a call to spread the unconditional mindset everywhere at any time. To be like the good Samaritan rather than like the priest and the worship pastor who are tribal, conditional. And this is a worthy purpose in life. We all need worthy purpose in life. We need to find truly satisfying purpose. Because why live? I mean, it's hard enough to survive. It is, right? I'm sure we all have like things we have to do and things that worry us and weigh us and burden us because it is not easy to survive in this city, no? But why strive so hard to survive? What is it all for? We need a, a satisfying answer to that. Otherwise, we lose energy. It becomes... Uh, right? We need purpose. And many of us pick, like, success. Wealth, but, but why? To leave a legacy? In a million years, nothing of now will remain. In a billion years, sun will eat us up 
nothing will remain. Well, what is it for? It's not satisfying enough. Why not make unconditional mindset agape your purpose? That is the question for today. Why not think about making agape your purpose in life, spreading it, to change the world, even a little bit, even just the corner of your world, if you can move the world towards agape, just a little bit. So when you see discrimination of any kind, to take it personally, to agitate, to say, no, that person who is, you know, being suffering under the conditional mindset of this world, I need to identify with that person as if that person were Jesus himself. That that's the way to think, to move the world towards agape, towards unconditionality. Historically, that would have placed us on the side of abol abolition when most of the church supported slavery for 1,800 years. How do you get it so wrong for so, wrong, so long, right? Agape mindset would have put us on the side of equal rights, right? That's obvious, equal rights, unconditionality, race rights, gender rights, unconditionality. When they were extremely unpopular and nobody thought that way, it would have been a guiding star, a north star that does not fail us, would have been on the right side. And today, LGBTQ rights. We would have been on the right side of history every single time that tells us this is the right way to go. <laughs> so let's start living for agape. This is true evangelism. To start thinking, you know, it's not about converting people from their culture and their families to accept some statements. What does that do anyway? No, instead to think, I am here to spread agape mindset within myself and in my corner of the world, wherever I see it. That is my purpose. That is my evangelism. That is the mission set for us by Jesus. If you start thinking that way, life will take on a different hue. You will experience energy, a sense of guidance, a sense of this is what my life is for. You will become the salt and the light, the seed of agape that grows and that can change the world. And that goes to the purpose of church as well. Why do we gather? Why do we worship God? Why do we sing songs to God? Why do we talk to each other? Why do we connect to each other? It is to spread agape. And I propose to you that we need one another. This is not something that is easy to do by yourself. You will probably fall into tribal mindset if you don't come together like this. Look around you. I mean, there's different kinds of people from all kinds of ages and races. If we can band together, give our hearts to one another and say, hey, look, we are a community standing for agape together. See, that can be a little mustard seed that can change things around within yourself 
and around us. More on this next week. Again, it's a trilogy or even more. But that's why I am excited about church. It's why I do this, and I want to invite us all to do this together. cannot be done by one person. You're not here just to hear some good teaching so that you can go to heaven. You have to practice agape. It's the only way. So let's do it together. Amen? Amen. Thanks, guys. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that your message of good news is not about some statements. It's about a fundamental change in our hearts and in how we see everything. Help us to become people of agape. Help us to band together, to stand for agape on the side of the tree of life opposite tree of knowledge of good and evil. Break conditional mentality in us and help us to move towards agape all the time together. In Jesus' name, amen.